0: Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews, and short stories, and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription, and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. Hello, and welcome to part two of our interview with Professor Norman Davis, the author of George II. I do recommend you listen to part one if you haven't already. Today, Norman continues to tolerate me much as he would tolerate a particularly dim student, as he explains the British monarchy in its European and pluralistic context. And of course, we discuss the topic of slavery and George Augustus's connection to it. I do hope you enjoy the episode and please do subscribe. So another thing I think that he's been described as, George Augustus, is the King of Slavery. Oh, where did you hear that? That was just in some, some research that uh, our reviewer had obtained. Well, I
1: think that came from me. Um, uh, it, it's, a, of course, a bit of an exaggeration. i I I've proposed um, that title for um, a piece uh, which the Penguin publicity people sort of swallowed, I think. Um, but I think it was put out, and so I'm glad that it's come round. But, um, yeah, um, I chose that sensationalist title because uh, his connection to slavery has been completely ignored. No, nobody has written a sentence about it the the latest biography of George II, <clears throat> uh, published in 2010 by a man in Cambridge called Andrew Ta- uh, Thompson, uh, which is um, to be commended in many ways. He uh, he makes a very good effort at um, uh, writing the 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 wrongs, a sort of overturning the vilification that um, had had come our monarch's way. But he doesn't say a word about the slave trade, although during this reign, 1733 to 1760, the British slave trade became, you know, leader in the field in the same way as the the Royal Navy did. I've got, you know, two or three pages about it. But it is amazing that... that, um, because this king has been largely erased from history, like he's not even in 1060 and, uh, 1066 and all that, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's been rubbed out. Because he's not present, nobody has connected the, um, the ruling monarch with the rise of the slave trade, which is, is uh, an interesting topic.
0: And what was his relationship with it?
1: Well, he, he was governor of the South Sea Company which was at the heart of the slave trade. It all came from the Treaty of Utrecht, when uh, Britain secured this monopoly on on the, uh, you know, the asiento, on the, um, the trade with Spanish colonies, an important part of which was a trade in slaves from Africa to the Caribbean and South, South America. And the company... Uh, Created for that was the South Sea Company, which was the object of this mad um, um, speculation. How many people talking about the South Sea bubble tell you it's all about slavery? Um, that was where the money was coming from.
0: It's interesting. Uh, yes, we, we had a piece, uh, an interview with Thomas Levison, who's written a book on the South Sea bubble. But it, it's it's interesting because obviously the, uh, the, the bubble is, is the thing that really attracts the attention, but as you say...
1: Yeah, well, after the bubble, the South Sea Company continued, uh, my man <laughs> um, stops being the governor just before the bubble. He's governor as Prince of Wales from when he comes uh, to 1718. Then his father, George I, takes over, as governor of the South Sea bubble, South Sea Company. And then when um, George II succeeds in 1727, he takes back the governorship of the South Sea Company and holds it to the end of his reign. He also founds the Royal African Company. There's, There's a reorganization of the African trade during his reign anyhow, and a new company is founded. And he provides the charter for that. No, there's a lot—a big story to be talk, told. He, uh, George II founds the colony of Georgia in America, named after him, of course. Uh, and um, Georgia was going to be a slave-free state. It was um, founded uh, at the initiative of a, an idealist. Philanthropist called James Oglethorpe, who intended to rehabilitate it, uh, rehabilitate you know convicts and felons and the poor of London. Um, once it was established, it was established in 1732, uh, and after about ten years, the um, the planters there decided they couldn't compete with other colonies because. Slave labor was more profitable, so slavery was brought into Georgia um, with the approval, of course, of Amen. But the, again, the interesting thing to me is not all that. That's that's sort of, that's that's the British side of it. George Augustus was the biggest serf master in the electorate. Serfdom existed in Germany until the early 19th century, and George Augustus was brought up accepting serfdom, which was pretty horrible. The difference between serfdom and slavery is um, is a topic for for um, experts. Uh, But on the the serfs were tied to the land. You know, they they were. Beaten, or they could be killed by their uh, their owners with impunity. Um, they were entirely dependent on their um, on their masters. <clears throat> the one thing that couldn't happen to a serf: they couldn't be sold off individually like slaves. They were sold off together with the estate, but that was no joy for the uh, for the serf. Um, how many of these the people going on about slavery now ever compare it to ser- serfdom? It, it's a very sort of insular way of looking at it.
0: Well, I, I, uh, serfdom was, was widespread all, all across um, what was then Germany. Well, it was not Germany, but all the, the various well, states. and
1: France as well. You know, the, um, you know, the, the Ancien <laughs> Regime, um, uh, France, Germany, Poland, Russia. Slavery was still going in Russia as well as served him.
0: So another thing he had to deal with in England, but, and um, uh, speaking to you, I'm interested to know if he had to deal with something similar, um, was, was the 45 with Bonnie Prince Charlie and, and reaching as yeah. far south as Derby. Did he have any, I mean, I'm interested to know how much that affected him, but also, did he have to deal with any, uh, any incursions into his own uh, territory in, in Germany?
1: Uh, yes. Interesting you say England. Do you know where Bonnie Prince Charlie landed?
0: In Scotland.
1: Yeah. That's not England.
0: Was part of the Act of Union and, and of course, Great Britain.
1: Yeah. No, yes. but this is why language is important. Yes. Most English historians don't know the difference between England and Scotland or Great Britain. And it's very important. Okay. Um, he was king of Great Britain and... Uh, in Great Britain, his um, title was um, opposed by the, the Stuarts, the Pretenders, and um, there were two big Stuart Jacobite risings, 1715 1745. Uh, he, um, he dealt with that pretty effectively. Um, in 1745, he he actually set uh, set up a camp in Finchley outside London, um, uh, in case the Jacobites got as far as as London, which they didn't. And his son Cumberland, who was a, a pretty awful character, um, of course, uh, took the uh, the army north and um, basically destroyed Gaelic civilization. But in Germany. The threat was not from um, local claimants, it was from France. Hanover is to the west of Germany, um, and the the French were the hereditary threat, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And um, the French were constantly trying to uh, cross the Rhine and invade um, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, The only time during his reign when they actually captured Hanover was in 1757 in the Seven Years' War, which was for him, you know, a major, major threat. Fortunately, he uh, he won over Pitt, William Pitt, the the elder, who had spent most of the 20 previous years denouncing what he called, you know, the... um, what did he call it? The uh, you know the terrible electorate. Um, Pitt realized that uh, he had to fr- fight the French both on land in, on the continent and on sea. Um, on the sea, and uh, Britain was pretty successful. Well, very successful. That's the time when they we got India,
0: when they captured Canada. Indeed, the annus mirabilis. Yeah. Um, George II Augustus is not the first monarch to have, a, have dual sovereignty. There's Henry II, for example, um, with the Angevin Empire. And they were all, uh, uh, and of course, his son John and, 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 Richard, uh, and Richard the Lionheart. The, these kings were always accused of caring more for their ancestral homelands than they did for England. Was that, a, think, yeah. <laughs> was that an accusation that... Um... Well, it's a bit of a joke to my
1: mind. Um, I, I say to have multiple crowns was the norm. The Stuarts throughout the 17th century were kings of Scotland, kings of England and kings of Ireland. There were three countries joined... This was a composite state, right? One sovereign, three crowns. Uh, so, you know, what was their homeland? Uh, well, the Stuarts were Scottish. You know, England was was not the uh, the home of the Stuarts. You, you mentioned these distant medieval monarchs, mm. the predecessor of the um, of the Hanoverians to have uh, you know dual sovereignty was William the or- William of Orange. He continued to be Stadtholder of Holland whilst being King of England in his case, uh, jointly with, with Mary. He, in the Netherlands, he appointed a, if you like, a manager, I forget the Dutch title, but nonetheless, he, his, he was still the um, sovereign ruler of uh, England and Scotland and Ireland, and the Netherlands. This is another composite state.
0: And and where does he stack up as an elector? Is he well, in this, it, the Premier League of electors? Well, uh, as you know,
1: there were, whatever, 365 states of the Holy Roman Empire. He was one of the, um, uh, by his time, how many were there? Um Six secular electors, like absolutely the top, you know, the premiership of uh, of Germany. He um, wielded his vote in the um, uh, the elections for the Holy Roman Empire, uh, and he was one who voted against the Habsburgs in in seventeen whenever it was seventeen uh, forty two or seventeen forty. And then, of course, the Habsburgs came back after an interval. Um, but sure, no, he was he, he certainly um, premier division. Uh, he was um, uh, active in the League of Princes of the Holy Roman Empire who were divided between Catholics and Protestants. And uh, the Protestant League was uh, something he was um, very concerned about because his neighbour, the elector of Saxony, who incidentally had become king of Poland recently? So uh, you've got another composite state, Saxony-Poland. But the Elector of Saxony turned Catholic in order to become king of uh, Poland, but wanted and succeeded in re, remaining the president of the uh, of the Protestant princes of Germany. You know, And our man was unhappy about that, as, as a lot of German Protestants were. You know, if, uh, if you turn Catholic, you should join the the Catholic League of Princes. So that was quite an incident. Ah, incidentally, religion is, is very interesting. All Lutheran princes in Germany, not the Catholics, but all Lutheran princes were, um, they had the title of uh, episcopus supremus the supreme bishop of the head of the lutheran church in their state george augustus was the supreme head of the lutheran state in the electorate of brunswick-lüneburg he then became supreme head of the king of uh, the church of england so he had two he was supreme head of both of them right but whoever tells you that?
0: You know, well, I think I think I think you have now fi- uh, finally, it seems. Well, uh, it's
1: pretty important, isn't it? If the the head of the Church of England is not an Anglican, absolutely, he's not only not an Anglican, he's the head of another another church.
0: But such was the desperation to have a non-Catholic on the throne.
1: Yeah, well, it was desperate and. Uh, very p- badly informed. They didn't even know who they were, uh, who they were inviting to be monarchs. Lucy Worsley, for example, talks about Hanover being a dinky little principality.
0: But you just uh, described how large it was and, and yeah. yeah,
1: and important, and um, the implications of inviting a person like that to be the British monarch. No, was, the implications were huge. And they only found out about it, I think, afterwards. And um, this is probably the last theme, you see. The um, British history has been written. Um, you know, the Whig interpretation of history was that there was a revolution in 1688, in the glorious revolution. And from that date onwards, the parliament was... Um, you know, the most important institution, laid down the laws which the monarchy had to follow. Well, the Hanoverians, as you call them, didn't follow that. They, uh, and Walpole, didn't, like Walpole, with George II, took complete control of Parliament through corruption, bribery, placement, and uh, everything that Nemia describes. And it was only after... George II, that Parliament, as it were, reasserts itself uh, and um, moves towards the constitutional arrangement of the 19th century, which everybody, as it were, took uh, to have been built in stone since 1688, and it it wasn't. Um, uh, So, uh, I think our man has got an important place in the history of Parliament.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's, a fas- it's a fascinating book. We've got it reviewed. Um, it's on our website. So um, I'll, I'll Im- I did George II for my A-levels, though, um, and it was so English-centric. I mean, you know, I, we were aware that he was an ele- elector of Hanover, obviously, but it, there was, um, even in our two modules of the A-level of, of European and English modern history, we only looked at um uh george the second and george the uh, first from a english standpoint or british standpoint
1: mm. well that's how it is that's how it is yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. oh i well, i i i don't know, don't usually re- re- read reviews but um
0: uh. well i can i can uh, i can, i'll send it over to you um and it, 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 i just i just wanted to thank you because i know you know uh, having an hour to talk, talk me. I know you. You mentioned how busy you are. Have, have you got? Are you working on something else at the moment?
1: Yeah, I'm r- writing a history of Galicia, i.e. Um, Austro-Hungarian Galicia, which is now partly in Poland and partly in Ukraine. Completely vanished kingdoms, which were Indeed. one of my, vanished one of my kingdoms. ideas. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and similar problems. I I probably got got it from studying Polish history how um how peculiar uh, sort of national versions of history are, how they distort and English history in particular is very nationalistic. They, uh,
0: I, I suppose um we're all looking back at, at, at the past from our um from the country as it is today, mm-hmm. I guess assuming that you know, um, it was like
1: as we think it is today,
0: yes, yeah, well, that's true, that's true. I mean, you wouldn't believe it from um, my accent, but um, um, I, I'm, uh, I've got a lot of Irish in me, um, so right. I certainly appreciate the English centric view of, of history, it is very frustrating. Mm.
1: Well, I, I've got a lot of followers in, in Ireland. Um, uh, um, in fact, I gave a, a lecture, was it last week, to the city of Armagh, which was fascinating. Um, I, it's not, I don't know a lot of the, the details, but um, <laughs> just a matter of being aware of how um, biased um, historical narratives can be uh, and the language that you... If you, if you don't get the language straight, you can't you think straight about it.
0: Well, I think, I mean, that's probably, you, you've got that impression from some of our questions because they come from, certainly on my side, from being educated in an English school by an English teacher.
1: That's what history should be. It's about showing how the past was different from the present. Uh, as you yeah. say, a lot of people start with these fixed ideas about, the world as they would like it to be and then project it into the past.
0: Well, Norman, I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you very much for your time and I've certainly learned a lot.
1: Good. All the best. Thank you.
0: Well, there you are. Hopefully you can now confidently discuss the Hanoverians or, as we should call them, the Brunswick Lüneburgs. Coming soon, we have Tessa Dunlop discussing her new book, Army Girls, the secrets and stories of military service from the final few women who fought in World War II. Now this is an important subject, and Tessa has done fantastic work in ensuring women who served during the war are given a voice. We also have Anne O'Brien talking about her new novel, The Royal Game, a story of romance, bloody violence, and the Walls of the Roses. So do subscribe and give us a great rating if you can. Thank you, and good night.